Yeah, so this is your podcast coming to you live from uh, this wonderful place that we have to congregate, worship, and listen to the word of the Lord. So this morning, I'm going to be going through again through Mark. Uh, we did this last two weeks ago. We basically are going through Psalms and we're going through Mark just as a way of being a little bit consistent in terms of taking you through a book of the Bible or books of the Bible, one of the old and one of the new. And so that's what we're doing at the moment. And I told you about the Gospel of Mark last time. And the Gospel means good news. Good news or the good message. It's a term used to herald something of a message about a kingdom coming. They used to use heralds, particularly in the days of uh, Rome. They were the Twitter casts or the, yeah, probably Twitter was just probably the best related word for it. They would carry the message of the good news. And uh, the, carry the, that's why it's called the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And the last time we spoke, we introduced Mark and we spoke about preparation and how God uses preparation in our lives and how God prepared the way for Jesus to come and the scriptures that went with it. So this is what we're going through the, the Gospel of Mark. And this week, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to turn to the next portion of Scripture, which is in Mark 1 and 9 to 11. And it says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven, this is John saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, in whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And if we read some of the other correlating scripture, there's more, uh, more detail, particularly in uh, Matthew. And it speaks about, John said that I would not have recognized him, except that I saw the Spirit of the Lord, the one who told me, that I was to prepare the way for the Messiah would tell me to recognize him by the fact that the Spirit of God would come down upon him like a dove. And so that's how John the Baptist recognized Jesus. But John the Baptist tried to deter Jesus from being baptized. Now, it is interesting because up until the time John the Baptist was, uh, Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. But what he did know was that Jesus' life spoke volumes because John was Jesus' cousin. So he would have grown up with Jesus. And that's why Jesus, John the Baptist, when Jesus came to be baptized by him and said, I'm not going to, I should be baptized by you, not you by me. And it wasn't related to his messiahship. It was related to the type of life Jesus lived right up until that point. So while we don't have that history... John would, the Baptist would have seen that history of Jesus growing up and seen him as a perfect person. So this scripture is about baptism, but it's also about the bond between a father and his son. Very interesting that at the baptism, Jesus was affirmed by the father. In fact, the proclamation of the father's love for his son gives baptism its context. And without that context, all right, it's just merely... A symbol, but the, the fact that it affirms sonship of Jesus gives baptism its context, and we'll see how that works its way out. So, in 
the con this context is relegated to baptism if if it doesn't if we don't see baptism all right in the context of the father's love then it just relegates it to purely a symbolic uh, symbol that we actually are called to perform so it must be seen in that context so baptism for us is part of the process of being adopted so baptism is part of that process um, into God's family Ephesians 1 5 he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will okay he predestined us to be adopted so this process of baptism is part of the adoption process Anyone who, say, who is saved knows that adoption is a process that takes time. And it's interesting, I was, uh, the whole understanding of adoption is such an important factor for the believer. We're watching a, uh, a program or a TV series uh, where this one girl went to an orphanage. And in an orphanage, you know, you people there in those days, this was in the early 60s or 50s or sometime then all the people in that orphanage were waiting to be adopted i mean and, and and while i suppose if you are adopted it's a great thing but there's many of the girls that were in that place that were not necessarily pretty or not necessarily somebody that people would want and so you would see them staying there for years while others that look more attractive would be the ones that would be adopted very sad indeed life just breaks your heart but i thought to myself this is such a picture of the way that god adopts you know because it says blessed are the poor in spirit for there's the kingdom of heaven god it says not many of you were high of high class when the lord adopted you he didn't come in and say okay well that one looks good that one looks good and that one looks good, i'll adopt them he came into that and he said, that one's rejected, that one is poor, that one is, I'll adopt them. Now, adoption is open to everybody, but that's the process. And baptism, all right, adoption gives baptism its context, all right? And all of us know who have been saved to some extent that while it is an occasion, all right, which I'll give you a scripture for now, but it is a process. Every one of us who has come to know Jesus when you say to them, well, when were you saved? We can point to a date, but most of us will say, you know, actually it was a process. And when you really know him and that process of adoption is complete, you'd say, you'd say exactly what the psalmist says, which is in um, 139, 16 to 7. You saw my unformed body, my frame was not hidden from you. You, when I was made, in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And certainly I can testify that while I know the occasion on which I was saved and the process. Once I knew God, I knew He was there before I even said yes. You see, because adoption takes a process of time. There is an adoption. And that's why you will have these when people say, when you ask somebody, when were you saved? And they can point to a day, which I will come to now, which you must say yes, because the decision is not only on God's part, but on our part as well. 
But when we when you speak to Christians, they'll say, well, you know, because I, I know when I was saved, but beforehand I was already speaking to the Lord. Already the Holy Spirit's presence on me was already there. He was already communicating. In some sense, I was already a believer before I accepted Him. Because the process had begun a long time ago. And actually, once you start to know Him, and you start to look back over the course of your life, you start to say, wait a minute. He was always there prompting me for this into this process of being adopted. So adoption gives baptism its context. As I said in John 1.12, one has to receive it. He doesn't come along and say, well, I've chosen you, you will come. He says, I've chosen you. Your decision is whether you actually want to come or not. John 1.12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. That's speaking about being born again. John 3 um, speaks about that. John 3, 3 is you've got to be born again. Born again is a process by which we are changed and that we, are, uh, we make the decision and God gives us the power to become children of God. And it is a decision. And let me say this, that the blood of Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross, uh, paid the price for the adoption of every human being that's ever lived and ever will live. So he's, in Jesus Christ, it's not that he chose some, he chose all, but some have decided to be adopted. That's my belief. He chose us all, but some have decided I will be adopted, and some have said I don't want to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. So we have to make a decision. It's not something that God says you will do this. That's why we, as, a, as a believers, bring people to a point where they receive Jesus into their heart. If you've never done that, you need to do that, because the Bible says that. And those who received Him. You see, some people say, well, I'm a believer, but that doesn't mean that you've received Him. You haven't said, I receive you into my heart, I receive you. And there is something about saying that. That's very critical to your faith. It's part of the adoption process as well as baptism. So adoption, that's a great word as I said. We become part of the household of God. A crazy household of God. But it says that in Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You know, it's, it is a wonderful thing to be a part of the household of God. And when we speak about, you know, church on Sunday, if we simply speak about it as we've got to attend church on Sunday, we have missed the whole point completely. And it's not really worth speaking about. It's coming to the family of God. And I don't know about you, but maybe you might say, well, I've got a group of Christian friends that I hang out with that are part of the church, that's my church. I tell you, well, that's like saying, you know, I only want to see part of the family. That's not being part of the household. That one thing that's a great thing about the gathering of God's people is the household of God. It's the full household of God. And we've been adopted, a crazy family, but a family that is adopted, and every one of us knows that. 
People that are believers know that they've been adopted. Know that they don't deserve to be, that God chose them. You know, when you're all in a household with that understanding, it keeps you humble. And it actually enhances the love between brothers and sisters in Christ. As soon as pride enters, and we feel that somehow we are a better Christian than anyone next door to me, that's when the problems emerge. And that's when all sorts of things start to happen that shouldn't be happening. But God has adopted us a wonderful family, and it's so wonderful. You know, the most wonderful thing to have had is when you come, particularly if you come from overseas, and then you become part of the family of God, and your physical family is no longer with you. Your spiritual family is an eternal family. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. So just really, really. And how, so that's this adoption is what God calls us into. And as with Jesus in a baptism, the Holy Spirit testifies that we are God's children and joint heirs. In Romans 8.15 it says this, For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may also share in His glory. So here you have this adoption process that happens, and what we see in the baptism is God the Father affirming Jesus as His Son, all right? And now we come to the Scripture, and part of that deal is that God wants to affirm you as His child through the Holy Spirit, exactly the same way as it happened in baptism. So when we look at baptism, we mustn't simply look on the surface of it. We must look at it as part of the process of adoption. All right? And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are His children. You see? Same thing. Tie it in. That's how it ties it in. Adoption gives baptism its context. We need that understanding of adoption in order to actually understand baptism. So I just wanted to share that as an introduction, but as the main sort of heart of what God does when He baptizes, where we are baptized. So baptism, what is it? Well, it's a declarative symbol. Now I know that for many of us, we've heard teaching about baptism all the time, and many times over. And sometimes we just like, let it go, because we have had it so many times. But baptism is such a vital thing. 1 Peter 3.21, some people will be baptized there. And, the water, the, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here it speaks about a symbol, that this is a symbol. Okay, not the removal of dirt from the body, but it is symbolizing something. Now, a symbol is nothing by itself. It's not magical. So if you say to me, well, you know, is, this, is, there, is there power in baptism? I'd say to you, there is. But it's what it represents. And that's why when we speak to people, they must understand what it represents. Otherwise, we're just doing... Oh, you told me I needed to be baptized. And we must understand that it represents, it represents a whole lot of things. It's like the ring on my finger. Okay? The ring does not make my marriage. Okay? 
if I have the ring on or if I don't have the ring on, doesn't make me more or less committed to my wife. Alright? However, if I take this ring off, nobody knows about my marriage. Where they see me and they meet me. Because the symbol is not there. It doesn't identify me with everything that is required or everything that marriage represents. And it's quite interesting because at one time it got too tight for me. Sometimes, you know, as you get a little older, and I have developed a skin rash under here that I couldn't wear this ring. All right, because it gave me a rash. So I stopped wearing it, and in our casual society, basically, I said, you know, I'm 100% committed to my wife. I'm not going to be tempted more or less because I have a ring on my finger. You know, sin is within you, and if you're going to sin, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, what I'm saying, when it doesn't matter, it means that this is not the thing that protects you. Okay, what's in your heart protects you. However, the symbol is very critical. I remember some dear brothers and sisters saying to me, they said to me, where's your ring, Kirk? And I say, well, you know, I'll get a rash on my, on my finger, and that's why I'm not wearing it. They said, no, no, you must wear it. Why? Because of what it represents. So I had to extend it, make it bigger, so that I could wear it. Right? But because wearing it, it represents something, and so does baptism. It symbolizes and identifies you as a believer with a whole gamut of stuff. It's not just simply about, okay, I've done what I've called to do. It identifies you with the whole history of God leading His people. And that's why it speaks about, as you read in the New Testament, that it, it, it symbolizes going through the, the sea from Egypt and into the Promised Land. Very, very, very important uh, symbol of that whole history. And that's what symbols do. Alright? So we, that's why we say to people, you need to be baptized. Uh, there's other reasons as well, which I'll get to, but that it is a symbol of what it represents. And that's why we don't baptize infants or people that don't really, can't really understand what it really means. There's a certain, in my opinion, age where you get to where you can understand what that symbol represents. Why is why we'll never baptize infants? is because they don't understand what it represents. Once we understand what it represents and that we are identifying with everything and it's a choice that we make, then we can baptize them. All right? It's also about this pledge of a good conscience. And say, so, pledge of a good conscience? Do you know that your conscience is the mechanism through which the Holy Spirit speaks to you? Your conscience is the mechanism through which the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And so why does it speak about a pledge of a good conscience? Because the pledging of a good conscience means that you're not going to violate your conscience when the Holy Spirit convicts you. Because the Bible says, all right, that no longer will a, neighbor te a person teach his neighbor. They will all know me from the least to, to the greatest. What that means is, is that we all become children of God. The Holy Spirit speaks to us about sin and about direction and about certain things. But if we, if we for a minute... When our conscience is spoken to by the Holy Spirit, and there is that conviction, and we just turn that conviction away, yet the Bible speaks about it, it's like, become seared. 
your mechanism for hearing the Holy Spirit becomes compromised. And then you cannot discern whether what you're doing or what you aren't doing is good for you or whether it's bad for you. Because you haven't kept your conscience in good standing with the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit spoke through it, through, through to convict you of something, you ignored it. A lot of people do. You just ignore it. And it's to their peril that you ignore that. So that's what, this is a declarative symbol, a pledge of a good conscience. It is also about repentance. Okay? And the word used in the, in the Greek for repentance is metanoia. And what that means is it's a change of mind. It means to think differently. So it's not this act of contrition that happens. So, I mean, I was brought up in a Catholic environment. They taught me the importance of repenting of your sins. And for some of that, I have to say, I'm, I'm somewhat grateful. But they focus very intentionally on the sin that you committed. So I would go to confession weekly, and then I would have to tell the priest, this is what I did wrong, this is what I did wrong. All right? And then he would say, okay, you've done that wrong, now you need to go and say a couple of Our Fathers and Hail Marys in order to, to, to do that. Completely erroneous. I mean, that teaching is completely erroneous, because we don't get absolved from our sin by doing something. All right? Unless it's, unless it's retribution, in the sense that if I've stolen somebody, I'd go and give it back. Well, that the Bible does call us to do, you know. Uh, but we, it's not an act that gets God to forgive us. You know, God forgives us through the confession of sin. But this, the, it teaches us to focus intentionally on sin, which is problematic. Because sin, as the Bible speaks, is a, a complete mindset. And so when we use the word metanoia, it means that we're changing the way we think completely so that we think we used to think in a worldly fashion and now we think in a godly fashion that's what it means and so some people are confessing their sin and they're getting rid of most of their sin in their life but they're still thinking with a worldly mindset in terms of the way in which god is going to i'm going to be provided for i'm going to work out my life they're still self-orientated and that's what it means the world means it it can be, if you've got a cultural mindset that is of this world, then you are still in the process of having a, you haven't changed your thinking. Alright, we need a change. It's very important to make this distinction that it's a change of thinking, not just, a, a, just a, an act of contrition that happens when we say, Lord, I've sinned. It's a change of thinking, a change of lifestyle completely. We'll get to that. Ephesians, Ephesians, um, is it there? Is it there? Yeah, Ephesians 4, 22 to 23 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by evil, deceitful desires, and put on an attitude of minds, and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's two parts to repentance. It's in essence a turning away from, all right? That's putting off the old way of thinking. The old way of thinking, all right? A way that your mind has been geared from when you were young and everybody that's around you, a way 
of thinking that is of this world. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with this world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So it's not just the adoption of Christianity or belief or faith. It's a turning away. For some people, that's what they do. Oh, I think that this is a great way to go. I think I do believe in Jesus. I believe that this is what we need to do. And this is what we need to be do as a good person. So they go in a certain fashion, but they haven't turned away from anything. They haven't turned away. They might not be as sinful as they were when they were younger because they're thinking of individual sins that they commit, but they still think with a worldly mindset. And basically, James is speaking about a, a mindset that focuses on gratifying oneself. See, that's a selfish motivation. The whole world without Christ thinks this way. The whole world without Christ thinks from a point of view of how everything affects me. And then the fight is on so that I'm protected and that I, my needs and my family needs are, are put as number one. That's a worldly way of thinking. And we have to turn away from that. We have to put that away. Right? It's exhibited in fights, in jealousy, in coveredness. It is in, it's in us because we're trusting in human beings or ourselves to fulfill our destiny. That's basically what happens. So if you are trusting, and, and it's easy to be sucked into the world. I mean, we are in, I mean, we're always in times of politics. But today, and at this day and age, it is like it consumes everyone and everything, particularly in what we're facing now. And let me say that it does affect us. But one must be very careful in this thing. Because it draws us into a way of thinking that's worldly. Very quickly and very easily. Alright? No, no human being is going to solve the problems of this world. No one. Doesn't matter how good you think they are, they're not going to solve it. You'll just be replacing one with the other. And... Above this, we know that the time that we're living in, the Bible says in the end times it's going to be very difficult. We must understand that. We must, in some sense, embrace the understanding that our trust and our hope is only in Christ. It's not in anything down here. Not in anyone down here. Now, does, does that mean that we mustn't vote? No, you must vote. God gives us a right to do the things that we need to do. But we mustn't be sucked in in terms of having our mindset so directed by what the, 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 uh, what's on the world's mind that it becomes our mindset. We have to turn away from that completely. 1 John 4, 5 to 6 says, They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So, in essence, we know it. Because people who hear us, and when I say they listen to us, it's not our good advice. It's a way of thinking that thinks with expectation of the rule of Christ here on earth. 
It's a way of thinking that puts your trust and hope in God and Jesus and not in the things of this earth. That's how we know. That's how we put our trust in that. And we must put our trust in that. That's what it means. That's what it means. That's what it exhibits. That's what we have to turn away from. Worldly thinking is thinking like the world thinks. And, and sometimes it requires discipline because it sucks us in. Even for myself, I, the, the, it comes at us. I've had to do something recently where I just like, okay, I'm going to block all of this stuff right out. Why? Because if I don't block it out, it's pulling me into a thinking. And even that thinking we think is right can corrupt us because we're thinking with the world's mindset. So we must be wholly focused on, on so baptism means that we think completely differently to the world. You know we're aliens here. You know when people call you an alien because you believe certain things, and they will. Guess what? You can say, yes, we are. We're aliens. We're not of this world. Does that mean that we don't love what God has created? I love everything that God's. If you speak about the world from in terms of His creation, I love His creation. It reflects who he is. But when we speak about the world, we're speaking a way of thinking and acting that is completely unique to this world that's different to us. We are, in essence, aliens to the mindset of this world, and that's what the Bible has called us to. And when we, re when we are baptized, that's what we turn away from. But it's not only about what we turn away from. It's also what we turn to. And some people say, well, you've got to be away from that, away from that, away from that. but then they don't replace it like... Jesus said, he said, you know, the person that had a demon, uh, somebody got rid of it, and it, everything was swept and clean, got rid of all the stuff, and the devil went out, or the demon went out, and he got some of his buddies. And he says, man, we can't find a place to get a home. Let's go back to the place that I left. He finds it swept and clean, but it hasn't been replaced with anything. And then that person's condition is way worse than they were before. And that's sometimes what happens with, with people, is that they say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm turning away, but they don't replace it. And in our day, let me tell you, godliness, you know, God, holiness means separated to. You know that? It's separated to. When it says the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath day holy. And I, again, I'm not speaking about it in context, okay, it has to be this day. I'm not. What that means, and most people don't realize, keep the Sabbath day holy, they say, well, it's a day of rest. Because they're thinking that the, the day of rest is specifically for them. But it holy means I'm separated to, and separated to God. You have to separate yourself to. It's not just about what you leave, it's about what God calls you to. And we need to be called to, that's what baptism is about. It's not just about what we leave behind, but it's also about what we've been called to. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't repent, have to repent of anything. He didn't have to leave anything behind because there was no sin in him. But he says to John, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness because baptism was not only about what I'm leaving behind, but what I'm called to. See, I'm called to something. And that is what we, we are, when we baptize, that's what we do. We call to something. And then lastly, all right? Oh, wait. I was supposed to put that down. Sorry, guys. 
Sorry. The last thing baptism is about is it's commanded. So we, if we look at all those things, the first one is that it's a declarative symbol. All right. It's of, of, of repentance, which means turning away from and turning to. And then thirdly, if that's not enough to you, it's commanded. It's commanded. It is commanded. Matthew 28, 19 to 21. There it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. All right, or to the end of the age. So, if you were saying, well, I'm not sure about its declarative symbol or anything else, well, one thing you should know is it is commanded. And I know, because I've been in that place, even as a, as a, as a, um, as a pastor of people, where people have come and they said, I've given my life to the Lord. Um, I was baptized as an infant. I don't really need to be baptized again. And then I would say, well, this is on your own conscience. Uh, we'll make space for you and do what you, you need to do what you want to do. And we would just be like, pretty much it's up to you kind of thing. To some extent, originally. And, and we did that because in some sense we wanted to maintain the unity of the spirit between churches. That thing is a devilish thing. Because it forces good churches to compromise on real truth. Do you know that? Ecumenicalism is not necessarily a good thing. Because it forces people into compromised situations as believers. And I know, I've been in that position. The Lord commands us to baptize people. Jesus was baptized not as an infant. He was baptized as an adult. So all the people that were coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, they were adults. They made a cognitive decision that I'm turning away from something and turning away to. They were people that understood their need to repent. When John the Baptist, when Peter says, Peter came, the people came to Peter when he preached to them about Jesus, they said, what must we do to be saved? He said, you must be repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So it was a command. We are commanded to be baptized, and it was an adult baptism. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an infant baptism. It was an adult baptism. It was something that there was a cognitive choice involved by the person being baptized. This scripture <coughs> is also vitally important when it comes to what we would term the word Trinity. And I know that Trinity is not a biblical term, but it is an understanding that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three different people of the Godhead that are completely one. Okay? Somebody, if somebody said to you, because there is a lot of teaching out there, that is going to say that the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit, that they are completely one. That there is no separation between the Holy Spirit and the Father. 
It is the teaching and it's strong out there. You must know that this scripture puts that to bed like that. If you understand what, what Jesus was saying when he said, baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. He was saying, you are baptizing them because God the Father is God, Jesus the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Otherwise, he would never have used the terminology that he used when he says you baptize them in the name of these three persons. So if you want to, if anybody comes to you and says to you, you know that uh, the Holy Spirit and the Father are the same Spirit, you can say to them, excuse me, the Scripture tells me that it's not so. And other Scriptures like it, but certainly the Scripture does tell us. So we baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because we believe that. That's part of the baptism process. So, that's baptism. Adoption and baptism is like that seal that says, right, there you've done. We've done it. You've, we've signed the papers. It's done. You're part of the family. Now, it doesn't mean that you aren't part of the family before that. But it is a requirement as part of that adoption process. So if you've never been baptized, and want to be baptized, and it's a tremendous time of the year to be baptized, then speak to me. Alright? Or speak to one of the other elders, because we want to baptize you. And I'm, as I said, I've baptized at this time of the year before in the Ottawa River. Very cold! But exhilarating at the same time. <laughs> Very exhilarating. Let's stand to our feet. And close your eyes. And I just want to say, if there's any of you here that have never received Jesus into your heart, in other words, you've never made a formal You've never had a, a formal acceptance of Him to say, This, Lord, I want to accept you into my heart as the Lord and Savior. As that scripture says, As many as received Him, to Him gave He the power to become children of God. If you've never made, taken that step, then, and you want to do it today, I'm not, we don't want to force anybody to do something that they aren't of their own volition making a decision to do. And I'm just going to pray this prayer with you. You can just pray it after me. You say, Jesus, I invite you into my heart. I invite you right now into my heart to be Lord of my life. Praise you, Jesus. Lord Jesus. Thank you. Let's be quiet. Don't worry about the music or anything. Just, just pray that prayer. Lord, I receive you into my heart. I receive you, Jesus, as the Savior of the world. You've been given everything that you need to know what it's about today. Just receive you, Lord Jesus, into my heart. Very important part of the process of adoption. 
And then after that comes baptism. So don't make a decision unless you prepare to be baptized and make a public declaration of that faith, that you, of the receiving of Jesus into your heart. So once you've done that, you say, okay, I've received Jesus into my heart and now I want to be baptized. And it shouldn't be something that you delay. It should be something that is immediate. You should say, because it's a public declaration. Baptism is a public declaration of what you've done inside. It's a public symbol of what you've done. So you must immediately say, okay, I've received Jesus, I must be baptized. And we will organize that with you. Come speak to me or one of the leaders, one of the elders that have been, uh, yeah, you just come and speak to us and we will make a plan for you to be baptized. Lord, I thank you and praise you for the opportunity, Lord God, to preach the good news of the kingdom to every person, Lord God, on this earth. And I praise you, Lord God, that you've given that responsibility to every person here. I pray that they will do it into the future, that they would speak to people about Jesus continually, continually in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Bless you. Keep that in your hearts for the people that you need to speak to.